0: at the marks of the church, and we started looking at the uh, doctrine of a church. A mark of a church is the pure doctrine. Uh, A church ceases to be a church if it loses its doctrine on fundamental things. Uh, Also, a mark of a church is the ordinances of the church, and then the third mark of a church is church discipline, the purity of the church. Uh, This evening, though, what we're going to start doing is looking at the ordinances of the church and how that is a mark of the church. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to start with a big look at what separates the Christian church in terms of ordinances, specifically over against Roman Catholicism. And then once we've covered that ground, we're going to narrow down and say, okay, what is unique about the Baptist practice of ordinances? And we're going to look at that. So the next several weeks is not only going to be looking at what the Scripture says, but we're also going to be looking at a lot of, of what uh, history, church history has said. Something about historical theology. Well, you've heard of... Uh, Biblical theology, you've heard of systematic theology. Well, there's something, a practice called historical theology. And just something about historical theology is this. It's not prescriptive, but descriptive. And what that means is this, is when someone is doing historical theology, they're not necessarily telling you this is right or wrong. They're telling you this is what these churches or this group believed in the past. So it's descriptive, rather than prescriptive, and so what we're going to do a little bit tonight is a lot of description, uh, but in that process, we will also come back to the Bible and and see what we believe, and if anywhere in this you have questions or you want me to clarify, because we're going to go through quite a bit of stuff, just let me know, and I'll do my best to, to answer a question. Let me just begin with this, though, is how many ordinances are there in the church? There's two. What are they? What are the two ordinances in the church? Lord's Lord's Supper and? Baptism, yeah, good. So Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay, now when we look at an ordinance, what does the word mean? What do you think of when you think of that word? Ordinance. like a law Okay like a law Yeah it's it's I would say it's it's a it's a law but we want to make a distinction it's what we call a positive law And by a positive law did God in the Old Testament command the children of Israel to do the Lord's supper and baptism No does he tell us not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? No. Those are examples of positive laws. So, positive laws are laws that God will give during a period of time, but then that law will no longer be functioning later. So, it's a positive law that is given to the church. Let me just ask you if someone was asking you, they came to you and said, okay. You say there are two ordinances in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But where does the Bible say that? Where would you go? Can anyone think of some verses that you might take someone to say, these are the ordinances that we have been given? The passage you read every communion Sunday? Okay. I don't know about that. 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, Dwayne? I have a chapter. Matthew 28. Yeah, good. So, 1 Corinthians 11, Matthew 28, is where Protestants, and to say Protestant is in distinction from, say, Greek Orthodoxy or from Roman Catholicism. You know, Protestantism. What does the word Protestant mean? Protest, Protest right? So there was a distinct, there was a distinction made. Um, 1517, Luther hangs the 95 Theses. Uh, The the Reformation really kick-started in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, uh, where he was uh, defending the faith. Um, But when we speak of the Protestant, that's in distinction from Roman Catholicism and from Greek Orthodoxy. Now, let me ask you this. Are there different opinions on how many ordinances or sacraments that that are in the church is this debated you mean in the protestant side or sure Catholic? is it is it, is it debated in the protestant side i
1: don't i would say no about the ordinances like they would say there's there are two
0: most say that there's two the overwhelming say there's two there's been some groups that have popped up that have said there was a th- a third of washing feet but uh, most, most do not see that as a, uh, an ordinance because it wasn't an ordinance. It was an example that Christ gave. And so we, we would reject that view. But um, what about between, say, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism? Is there a difference in how we view the ordinances? Yes. yes. So how many ordinances does the Roman Catholic Church practice? count matrimony, yeah. I think they count
1: matrimony.
0: Yep. Um, I think there are like seven. There's seven. There's seven. So seven of them. We're going to go through each one.
1: Oh, we are. Okay. okay.
0: We're going to go through each one.
1: I just heard that one time, so I don't even know what they are. But I heard
0: Let me ask you this question. Do the ordinances, in practicing the ordinance, does it communicate grace to the recipient through, say, the pastor. Think about that. So if I come and I hand you the bread and the fruit of the cup, and because I've touched it, is grace communicated through me through the partaking of the ordinance? Okay, so keep that in mind. So baptism, uh, in Roman Catholicism, they, they, would, they would practice baptism. In fact, that is the entrance into the church, and, and Baptists believe that as well. All, all groups believe that, it, that baptism is that entrance into the church. This is what they say in the, in, the, um, in the Catholic Catechism, which summarizes their doctrine. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway To life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Now, there's a lot of things that we would actually agree with there. Is that we as Baptists actually practice that baptism is the prior requisite to taking of the Lord's table? Um, that's That's a prerequisite. We believe that to be the case, that's also in our statement of faith. They go on to say, though, through baptism we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated in the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water and the word. So now where do we have the sticky point in that statement? Yeah, it's baptismal regeneration. Is that there's grace through this process that now unites me with Christ? It's taking something away from Christ. Yeah, and it's it's through the practice of the priest. If you go on and read the descriptions of it, you'll see that this can only be administered by um, a priest. That's a sacrament, ordination, and a special grace is given through that process as well. Now, baptism is prior to the next, which is confirmation. So you've probably heard of people going to their confirmation. Uh, A lot of times it's the age of seven when they they view that time, the age of seven. But it doesn't have to be at that time, but that can be the starting point. Here's what it says in the the, um, catechism. It must be explained to the faithful that the reception of the sacrament of confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. So that's why I started asking by the question of, how do we understand the the ordinances and this issue of grace? Are they effectual in our salvation or not? It goes on to say, the liturgy of the confirmation begins with the renewal of baptismal promises and the profession of faith by the confirmants. It is evident from its celebration that the effect of the sacrament, confirmation, is the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit as once granted to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And so again, what we see here is this idea that through this act there is an effect that takes place. The third is the Eucharist. What does Eucharist mean? It means Thanksgiving. We practice the Eucharist as well. We just call it the Lord's Supper, but Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. It's a celebratory act. The Holy Eucharist, according to the Catechism, says completes Christian initiation. Those who have been raised to the dignity of the royal priesthood by baptism and configured more deeply to Christ by confirmation participate with the whole community in the Lord's own sacrifice by means of the Eucharist. It is an efficacious sign. Now, the center of what takes place on a Sunday morning It would be the Mass. And so the center of that would actually be the Eucharist. In the Reformation, what became the center of the church worship service? Does anyone know? The Word. The Word became that, the preaching of the Word. That's why they started having pulpits. So they go on to say the sacrifice, and so this is what we want to understand. So when you actually study and we, we get into the issue specifically into the Lord's Table, into the theology of the Lord's Table, I want you to try to come back and be able to recall some of this. This is the Roman Catholic view. The Lutheran view is very similar. Um, our view is, di- very, is very much different.
1: You were... Yeah. Now the Catholic they have child baptism.
0: Now what is that? Well that that so with baptism they would be and they would be baptized as infants and so then after uh, a period of time they would go through and have confirmation after confirmation then they would be able to partake of the eucharist what's and going on in those 7 years training but that's not
1: you you had your first holy you have your first holy communion before you are confirmed, confirmed. Because confirmation comes after
0: so confirmation comes after baptism. No, it goes baptism. In the Catholic Church, it goes baptism, okay. first Holy Communion, when you're around seven. Mm-hmm. And confirmation has changed through the years. Like when I was in school, it was when you were like a junior, senior. But baptism's first. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I mean.
1: But you don't have to be confirmed to have um, communion.
0: You don't? No, that happens okay.
1: after first Holy Communion,
0: when you're like around seven. Gotcha. Thank you. So, Holy Communion comes after that. I mean, comes after baptism. Yes.
1: Yes. So, that's another... You go Baptism, then Catechism, then First Communion, then
0: Confirmation. Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. So, this is what's written in the, the Catechism on the Eucharist. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests. You see that through the priest. Who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. goes on to say the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really and substantially contained in the elements. His presence in the fullest sense. Anyone know what that's called? Transubstantiation. The Lutheran view is much like it. It's hard to, it's a philosophical, actually, argument that Luther made to make a distinction, but it's basically the same. Say that word again. Transubstantiation. And Luther called it consubstantiation. He didn't like that word, though, by the way. But it's that idea that the, in the elements there's actually the body, the blood of Christ is in the elements. Uh, I don't know, maybe you, you, you guys could tell me this, but I was speaking to a friend that was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, still practicing Catholic, and I had talked to them about that, and she said, Well, I didn't know that. We really believe that. Yeah. To me, it,
1: yeah, it was like it's kind of this mystic, it's mysticism. That's mm-hmm. why when you ask what the word subcons. I was thinking mysticism because it's like, because of the way that it's that it's prayed over, and because of what the elements are, then it's actually the blood
0: and body of Christ. Yeah, they believe that's that's it's what they changes. believe.
1: Yeah. Well, like it, yeah, it, even it starts out as bread and wine, and so it's not it, symbolic. It's it changes. Like,
0: the way they 've explained it is by using um, these philosophical categories to say that it remains in its substance this, but its accidents <laughs> are changed into these things it's but um, they would believe that if you if you ever get a chance and watch the last Luther ma- movie made, it shows him when he's about ready to give his first communion it's obviously dramatic re- Enactment, but according to historical records, it was accurate. He he's shaking like this because he's holding the blood of Christ. He's he's holding the blood of Christ, and he was shaking about that. He he messed up his first his first Eucharist. Did
1: he drop some on the floor?
0: Well, if the priest at one time could only partake in the cup, because lest the blood of Christ be trampled on by man. Uh, that's changed, though. But that was the practice for many years. Oh,
1: man. I, I literally thought it was blood. Mm-hmm. Like, it was wine, obviously. I mean, I figured it out eventually, but I'm slow. But I really thought it was blood. And then, because you see him it in and then pour the water, and I'm like, oh, maybe... Watered down blood, so bad. I don't know. <laughs> but that's pretty
0: sad when a kid thinks that the priest is drinking blood. Because yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Now the fourth ordinance is penance and reconciliation. This is what's described in the Catechism. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain. Pardon from God's mercy for the offense committed against him, and are at the same time reconciled with the church which they have wounded by their sins, and which by charity, by example, and by prayer labors for their conversion. Goes on to say, Sin is before all else an offense against God, a rupture of communion with him. At the same time, It damages communion with the church. For this reason, conversion entails both God's forgiveness and reconciliation with the church, which are expressed and accomplished liturgically by the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. It goes on to say later, Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, have the power to forgive all sins. And so, uh, that is very much predominant view, is that the, because they are standing in the place of Christ, there is this power of sins. And you'll see that when we get to holy orders, a power of forgiving sins. And they base that off of uh, John chapter 20. Um, we would reject that interpretation. Only can Christ forgive sins. A very interesting historical side note is that was caught part of, in the, the liturgy, called the absolution part, where the priest would stand and say, you are absolved of your sins. Calvin, who did not agree with that interpretation of it, he actually had absolution in his worship services. This is how he, here's, here's the difference. Luther, or Calvin would say this, if you are in Christ, and you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I can tell you your sins are forgiven. And I I would say amen to that, wouldn't you? Um, And so, important to note some of those little distinctions in there. Anointing the sick, extreme unction is sometimes what it's called. It's by sacred anointing of the sick and the prayer of the priest. The whole church commends those who are ill to the suffering and glorified Lord, that he may raise them up and save them, and indeed... She sorts them to contribute to the good of the people of God by freely uniting themselves to the passion and death of Christ. This is number five, is number five extreme unction. Obviously, we pray for, for the sick. We just don't believe it is an ordinance. We don't believe it is an ordinance. That's come to be known today as the what? Oftentimes, it's practiced in a hospital room right before someone passes.
1: Oh, the last rites.
0: Last rites. Six is holy order. Oh yeah, go ahead, Jimmy.
1: Can I can I go back to this
0: penance? Mm-hmm. When the priest forgives that sin, when Jesus forgave the sin, he took the sin on himself. That's right. They're not able to do that. If they if they were able to do that, there was no way for them to be. And you connect it to the Eucharist of the Mass, where Christ is sacrificed in that every time. And so it's, it's not a full salvation that is offered. It's a, it's a conditional salvation. that's conditioned upon your works rather than on the works of Christ. That being the penance? Uh, yeah, penance and reconciliation. Well,
1: I mean, like, is-
0: You have to do something, yeah. So you would have indulgences. Mm-hmm. You, diff- and different
1: types of indulgences too, because they were like regular, and then there were plenary or plenary, or I can't remember. And then there's it just depends on how much you
0: gave. <laughs> That's actually really. I'm, I'm appreciating that you're you're. Letting me know that stuff because I don't know it experientially. I know it from reading their materials, and so.
1: I had a Catholic Bible, and it said there was a certain thing prayer that if you prayed it, you would get an exemplary one, and then there, if you did it a different way, it was a plenary way, and
0: then yeah. So there's even different indulgences. I would
1: do them all just to cover
0: myself. Well, that that's what that's what. That's why there was a Reformation is because uh, Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences right. to pay for the the Pope's uh, Sistine Chapel. and uh, people were flocking to him, and that lit Luther's fuse. It was pastoral concerns more than anything that started the Reformation. Luther was a good pastor trying to protect, and he wasn't the pastor of the church. He was a theologian and a teacher. He preached in the church, was very pastoral, but it was pastoral concerns that started the Reformation more than it was doctrine. The sixth ordinance is Holy Orders. Holy Orders, this is from the Catechism, is the sacrament through which the mission entrusted by Christ to his apostles continues to be exercised in the church until the end of time. Thus, it is the sacrament of apostolic ministry. It includes three degrees, Episcopate, presbyterate, and Diaconate. The sacrament configures the recipient to Christ by special grace of the Holy Spirit so that he may serve as Christ's instrument for his church. Once a priest has been set aside through holy orders, that never goes away. Even if there's horrible sin that takes place, they might be disbarred from ministry, but the special grace that was conferred to them according to the Catholic Catechism never goes away.
1: But that is not necessarily a sacrament that everyone who... who
0: Just a deacon, a bishop, and a, and a priest, yeah.
1: But it's a, that's not one that, say, the layman has to go through in order to
0: reach. It's for the layman, but it would not be for, every layman would not become that. Okay. And so
1: you said there were three, the, the, the bishop, bishop, which is like the priest?
0: Like the priest. The, no, the bishop is over.
1: Oh, over. Okay, yeah. and then what was the third one? The presbyter. I mean, like the presbyter, which is kind of like the priest.
0: Yep, and then the diaconate, which is the deacon. And then the seventh is matrimony. The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole life is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. The covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of sacrament. This grace, proper to sacrament of matrimony, is intended to perfect the couple's love and to strengthen their indissoluble unity by this grace. Remember I asked about grace. Do our ordinances confer grace to us? By this grace, they help one another to attain holiness in their married life and in welcoming and educating their children. There's a lot of that that we would say, that's really nicely written. Um, Does it confer grace and is it an ordinance though? We would say no. Now, those are the seven Sacraments that are practiced in Roman Catholicism. So again, so how many do we practice? Two. two. We practice, and what are they? The baptism. Communion. Communion, yeah. Now, Protestants, while they disagree on the manner in which the ordinances are practiced, which we're going to discover in the coming weeks, they are all in agreement there are only two, and that they are instructed by Christ And that they are visible representations of the gospel. So we believe that when we do the Lord's Supper, it is a visible representation of the gospel. When we practice baptism, baptism is a visible representation of the gospel. Now, Christ gives these. Christ instructs them. Let me ask you, what gives Christ the right to demand these practices? <laughs> That's well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 says this And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Also in Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Christ is the head of the church. Um, We we would not believe in the, the idea of a senior pastor. And why not? Because Christ is the chief shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see that. Anyone else is an under-shepherd. And so, the, the idea of a senior pastor, I understand why we have those titles, but I think we should probably reject those titles because they're not helpful. There's pastors, and that's it. And Christ is the chief of them. He is the one who gives the, the marching orders. So, do we have a right to add or subtract to that which of Christ has commanded us. No, because he's the head. We can't go to the boss and say, you know, we're going to change these things up a little (laughs) bit. But churches do that, right? They do that in their worship. They do that in their structure. They change things. But Christ is is the one who instructs us. Now, these are given to the church. So that brings up the question, what is the church? If someone had to ask you, what is the church? How would you answer that question? Body of, believers. body of believers? Yeah. Yeah. It's a body of believers. Let's look at a couple passages that really help us see and define what the church is. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we see a couple of things here: is The church is something that Christ builds. It's something that Christ himself protects. And the entrance into that church is by revelation of the Father to the, uh, to the believer who Christ is. Notice what it says. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You think of those passages where we see that the Father gives to the Son. So the church is made up of people that the Father has given to the Son. It has been revealed in their heart who the Son of Man is. And Peter is that foundation in the sense that he is that confession. So we don't view him as, for instance, we don't view him in any sense more special than us. He was special in the fact that he got to walk with Christ and he was the one who confessed this and it's upon that confession, upon that apostolic authority that the church is built. Um, But the church is, are those that are in Christ, that Christ is building and Christ is protecting himself. It's a spiritual kingdom. You go over to chapter 18 of Matthew. Jesus gives more instruction on the church in the area of discipline. He says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the... The church. This assumes a couple of things that we cannot miss. It assumes an identifiable group of people, right? Because I can't take you before an unidentifiable group of people. So the church is actually a group of people that have constituted together, that have confessed who Christ is, and that is the church. It's an identifiable group. We would say this is that this here is the gathering of the local church. So you have the universal church, which is all Christians everywhere across the world. It's called the invisible church. But then you have the local church, which is a what type of church? It's not invisible. It's it's visible. It's identifiable. And so the church then are those that are regenerated. This is the essence of Baptist theology and what it means to be a Baptist, is regenerate membership. That is the sin qua non of Baptist theology. That is the one thing that if you take it away, we're no longer Baptist. Baptists believe in a regenerate membership that is crucial. Everything really in Baptist theology hinges on that one point. You look at, for instance, we see this in practice in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and it might become plain that they were not all of us. There's this idea of there were some here that claimed to be with us, but it turns out they weren't. They weren't regenerate. You think of this, the language of the bride of Christ. Think of the temple of God, the body of Christ. Those are all... Phrases used to describe the church in the New Testament that is describing regenerate people, people that have been born again and trust in Jesus. They confess Jesus as Lord. They can be disciplined by the church as Jesus instructs. And their confession is what is the the grounds of that entrance into the church. And Christ is the head of that assembly. This is what our own statement of faith says. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous, local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor and deacon is limited to men as qualified by scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what our statement of faith says about the church itself. Ordinances are given to the church, and in our practice of ordinances, because they are given to the church, they are for the church, we reserve them for those that are regenerate believers. That is how we practice because of, again, that one essential uh, doctrine of Baptist theology is regenerate membership. Our view of the ordinances, as I've already said, is that they are a visible representation of the gospel itself, which we'll get into more later on. And while Jesus has commended and commanded other things for the church to perform, those things do not rise to the level of an ordinance, for they do not visualize the gospel. The ordinances, a couple of things about the ordinances that we practice, they are to be practiced within the church. A couple of verses show us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse uh, 16 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So it's this idea of, of togetherness. In verse 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's this collective corporate practice. In chapter 11, verse 17 Paul writes this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better. So it's assumed that they practice this when they come together. And so it's something that they do together. Now, Jesus, as we've already seen, he, he commands the practice of baptism He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Now a quick test for you. What is the foundation of the church? Who who is our foundation in the church? This is a trick question, by the way. The apostles. Christ is the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that the foundation of the church is the apostles. So, but look at don't don't that doesn't mean Christ isn't. Yeah, he is the cornerstone. So here's how we test it. You look at what Christ commanded, then you look at the apostles commanding it as well. Paul writes in Colossians chapter two, in verse twelve having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then you see the practice of it in the church. In Acts, in chapter 2, we actually see the church practicing this. Those who received his word were baptized. So you see, Christ commands it, the apostle teaches on it and the early church does what? Yeah, they pra- yeah, they receive it, they practice it. So we see that practice with the uh, with the baptism, but then look at Lord's Supper. You see in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, very interesting phrase and I I've, I've always meditated on this passage because to me it's just fascinating. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord. He received the instructions on the Lord's table from Jesus. It's an amazing passage when you think about it. How did Jesus reveal this to him? Well, we don't know. But then look what he says. What I also delivered to you. Jesus commands it. Paul then goes and proclaims it and teaches it. And then what did the early church do? They practiced it. It says in Acts. They devoted, this is chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So Christ commands it, the apostles command it or teach on it, And then the early church practices it. So we have two ordinances. They are practiced within the church and they are for the church. Regenerate believers. We do not believe they confer grace, but we believe they are a means of grace. Think of what Paul calls it a cup of blessing. So what do I mean by that? Think of it like this. Will you grow in your Christian faith by being away from the church and doing it solo on your own? No. God has designed the church. Christ has designed and held his church together to be done corporately for our transformation. So in other words, when you're saved... You're saved by grace through faith, not of your own works, lest no one should boast, but we are created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. In other words, the goal of your salvation is transformation. And we're transformed by God's grace the the spirit working in us Christ dwelling in us and his righteousness working in us but he does this through means of the church in other words, what do we do? We come together, we fellowship around Christ, we sit around the word, we pray together, we sing songs together, we listen to the word being preached together, we see baptism take place, we participate in the Lord's table, and all of these things are doing something in you. They're working in you. God is using that as a way. But the thing the difference is is this, it's not because I can like touch it and it becomes grace. It's just to say that God uses means in our transformation. It's called the means of grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that receive them by faith. So it's not that they in and of themselves have any power. They don't. It doesn't save us. And we're not sanctified by keeping law. It's the spirit of God working in us that sanctifies us. It's by God's grace that we're sanctified. But that's not to say that when we do certain things that God works through that in our lives and he does. You're reading your scriptures, God works that in your life. You're praying to God, he's working that in your life. You partake in the Lord's supper, you have been baptized, God is using that in your life. That's what it means. There's a big difference to say that it's effectual for grace in your life and to say that it's a means of grace. Big difference. But it's also we cannot, because we, we disagree with the idea of something as being effectual grace, we can't just outright dismiss the idea of grace at all. I think that some will go too far on that end. So we need to see that God uses these as a means of Growing in grace through faith. Just as you would with any other Christian practice that we have. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather to uh, study your word, to study church history, to have discussion amongst one another on these practices. We thank you for this time of fellowship and that we were able to share a meal with one another. I pray, Father, that this time has been edifying for us all. I pray that we would be uh, thinking of these ordinances that you have given your church as a means of blessing for the church. As we depart from here, we pray for your safe keeping over us. We pray, Father. Uh, that you would be preparing our hearts to gather this coming Lord's Day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.